Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to the final show in the Lost in Science Summer Series. Over the past few weeks, we've been taking a bit of a break from our normal show and instead we've been playing some classic stories from the Laboratory. And the Laboratory is a monthly event in Melbourne where scientists tell the story of their favourite science heroes. This week we're featuring museum conservator Danny Meesday, who will be telling us all about the pioneers of paleontology, Othniel Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope, whose bitter, competitive rivalry led to the great dinosaur rush of the 19th century. And following her is something a bit different. This year, I and another science communicator, Michael Patterson, will be putting out a podcast of the science of superheroes. Its launch is still a few weeks away, but I thought I'd play a bit of a sneak preview of the first episode with an extract of an interview we did with aspiring Mars astronaut Josh Richards. So stay tuned for that. On with the show. Our final speaker for tonight will be Danny Meadsday. Meadsday? Um, come again? Meadsday. Thank you. No, no. Once more? That. Thank you from uh, Museum Victoria in the corner. Who uh, spent a considerable amount of her childhood curled up inside a pillowcase pretending to be a dinosaur egg. Since that time, she's become the conservator of natural sciences for Museum Victoria. Danielle's love of museum conservation began the first time she, she saw an X-ray of a painting. She trained as an objects conservator at the University of Melbourne's Masters of Cultural Material Cons- Conservation Program and then stepped sideways into the sciences and has never looked back. Danielle is passionate about natural history and works with collection managers curators and researchers across zoology, paleontology and geosciences to preserve the collections in good condition for the future. Danny. Thank you very much. Um, So the theme of science heroes conflicts a little bit with the two pioneers of paleontology I'd like to speak about tonight. Edward Drinker Cope and Othniel Charles Marsh did not heroically overcome poverty or oppression to rise to scientific greatness. They were both born into some privilege, in fact. Cope came from a very wealthy family in Pennsylvania, and Marsh's family in New York were not particularly affluent, but he had a handy millionaire uncle, George Peabody, who funded much of his career. Descriptions of Marsh and Cope use the word spoilt a lot. In fact, spoiled is one of the more flattering adjectives used to describe this pair. Other descriptors I've heard, ever unhappy, underhand, unscrupulous, egotistical, mistrustful, jealous, ambitious, possessive, ruthless, strange and bitter. Hmm. So I was a little bit hesitant to tell their story uh, when there was a few more uh, underappreciated pioneers of paleontology out there, like Mary Anning, who discovered her first ichthyosaur when she was 12 years old and spent the next 35 years patiently and skillfully extracting enormous sea monsters from the cliffs along the English Channel. But I'm happy to say that Mary Anning has already been spoken about at Labora's story, so she's someone else's hero too. Which is fine, I can share. That's all right. 
And besides, the story of Martian Cope is just a really good story. Um, and their careers in paleontology did take the known species of dinosaur in North America from 9 to 150. Their contributions also gave us some of the world's most beloved and iconic dinosaurs, the big sauropods like the Apatosaurus and the Diplodocus, but also the Triceratops, Stegosaurus, virtually oh, the Allosaurus, and virtually all the household names minus the T-Rex. It seemed to take a really frustratingly long time for paleontology as a science to get going. Although humans worldwide had been digging up fossil bone for many thousands of years, producing legends of dragons and cyclopses and giants, the appearance of these fossil bones had never really been attempted to be explained by science. For example, in 1787, an enormous fossil femur was discovered in New Jersey, New York. It was examined with mild interest by several people who all politely agreed it was, yeah, a really big bone. And then the bone was placed into a storeroom and promptly lost. Um, over the next half a century, uh, some rather radical shifts in thinking and advances in science were occurring, and this really paved the way for our protagonists of um, Cope and Marsh. So I'll just tell you a little bit about these advances. At the end of the 18th century, jaws and claws and vertebra began to come out of the ground and be described by scientists, but there was still no formal framework for the theory of extinction. It's really quite interesting to think about uh, these monsters coming out of the ground without the theory of extinction. You have to kind of speculate that people are like, are they just in a forest somewhere? Like, where are they? <laughs> um, so the first formal theory of extinction was written by George Cuvier in 1796 and was met with general unease, really, particularly by the church, because multiple extinctions seem to suggest that Noah's flood was maybe only the most recent of events and that maybe God was uh, perhaps more prone to casual destruction than they previously thought. <laughs> Um, but while the world wrestled with this uncomfortable thought, William Smith was creating the map that changed the world of geology. Published in 1815, this map, this map co correlated the ages of rocks in Britain by using the fossils that were present in East Strata. The term paleontology was coined in 1822, two years after the first reasonably complete dinosaur skeleton was found, a hadrosaurus. The exhibition of his articulated skeleton at the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia caused exhibition attendance to triple overnight. Everyone here who works in the museum thinks, yeah, triple overnight, let's do that. Um, the word and taxonomic clade of dinosauria, the terrible lizards, was named in 1841 by Sir Richard Owen, who presented a two-hour lecture to a bewildered audience describing the group containing Megalosaurus, Iguanodon and Hylosaurus. And then the world went a bit dinosaur mad. In 1854, a life-size concrete iguanodon was built in London, and 21 scientists had a dinner party inside it on New Year's Eve. <laughs> the, dinosaur, uh, the invites were printed on fake pterosaur wings. And in 1859, On the Origin of the Species was published, outlining the theory of evolution by natural selection. So all of this momentum was leading, up to, leading towards a dinosaur gold rush, and this is where Cope and Marsh began their scientific careers. These two men had two things in common, a passion for paleontology and a fiery contempt for each other. This is the story of a friendship turned into a rivalry so vicious that it left both scientists almost destitute later in life, destroying their wealth, tarnishing their scientific reputations. Bill Bryson says in a short history of, uh, a short history of almost everything, seldom, perhaps never, has science been driven forward so swiftly and so successfully by animosity. They met in Germany in 1866. Marsh was there studying natural history and Cope was on a, tour of, a study tour of Europe. Cope was 23 years old, recently heartbroken by the girl he'd hoped to marry and despondently staying in Europe to avoid conscription into the American Civil War. Despite a lack of formal training, by this time he had already written 37 scientific papers. 
Marsh, on the other hand, was a bit of a dapper gentleman, a decade older than Cope. He had two university degrees, his uncle's money at his disposal, and had written a total of two scientific papers in his lifetime. By all accounts, this first meeting went pretty well. Um, the Marsh showed Cope around Berlin, and they stayed together for about a week. And on return to America, Marsh went to Yale, and Cope went to the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia. But they remained in close contact by sending each other letters and fossils and photographs, and even quite sweetly named a few species after one another. So what went wrong in this blossoming bromance? <laughs> Some biographers point to a field trip that they took early in their friendship, where they visited the site in New Jersey where the first complete dinosaur had been found. One look around the site showed that it was rich with fossils, just waiting to be described. When Cope's attention was diverted, though, Marsh slipped the owner of the land a thick wad of cash and got him to promise to send all of the fossils found to him alone. But one attempt in particular is noted as the absolute death of their friendship. Cope had just published a paper on a new species of plesiosaur that had been sent to him for investigation. He named the creature Elasmosaurus plateris and published a description without realising that he had reconstructed the creature with the spine running in the wrong direction and had put the skull on the end of the tail. (laughs) On a visit to the Academy of Natural Sciences to see the reconstruction, Mark publicly and apparently quite gleefully pointed out Cope's mistake. Cope was angry and embarrassed at the public slight, and he tried to purchase all the copies of the journal that had the error, but he was too late to avoid the humiliation. The dissolution of Cope and Marsh's friendship gave way to an extreme competitiveness, where both men were determined to prove who was the better scientist. Cope's publication output went from frequent to insane. Over his career, he wrote 1,400 papers and described 1,300 new species of all kinds of fossils. (laughs) I love that. He is one of the most prolific authors in American scientific history and even purchased the American Naturalist Journal to keep pumping out species descriptions when other journals couldn't keep up. (laughs) On top of this, he was frequently in the field digging for new finds. On occasion, he was hospitalised for exhaustion. His style has been referred to by contemporary paleontologists as taxonomic carpet bombing. (laughs) And this rapid pace of working often led to mistakes. He wasn't particularly gracious about corrections either and has been known to try and blame mistakes on printing errors. Marsh published less frequently and more succinctly, often correcting Cope's mistakes along the way. He was not said to be particularly good at field work and spent only four seasons in the field in person. On one trip to the famous fossil beds of Wyoming, he apparently returned empty-handed despite the fact that bones were so numerous at that site that people built cabins out of them. (laughs) But Marsh was devious, lucky and very well-connected And with all the Peabody millions behind him, he could pretty much pay people to dig on his behalf. He was also not above bribing people to get his hands on good specimens. So while Cope worked furiously on his papers, Marsh sent agents out into the field to collect and acquire as much material as possible for his own study, but also as a way to keep Cope's hands off getting... Well, sorry, keep Cope's head from getting his hands off on his finds. Whoa, that was a tricky sentence. Um... (laughs) The cash that he was willing to spread around meant that he was soon receiving entire train cars full of fossils at Yale. Marsh and Cope began working in the Wild West, with particular interest in the bone beds around Wyoming, Montana and Colorado. The dinosaur rush was now in full force, and the cracking pace of species discoveries was creating a tangled net of classifications which isn't still fully unravelled to this day. These finds were not all unique. In fact, between them, Cope and Marsh managed to discover a species called Unitherus anseps, on 22 separate occasions. (laughs) But to Cope's fury and humiliation, many of Marsh's names were deemed valid by the scientific community, while fewer of his own names managed to stick. To reclaim ground, Cope published broad studies reclassifying whole groups of animals in order to decredit Marsh's work. 
And then things went from bad to ridiculous. There are accounts of Cope and Marsh's digging teams throwing rocks at each other. <laughs> Marsh paid spies to update him on Cope's progress. Cope paid a prospector to steal, bar- steal bones from Marsh's dig site. Cope was caught red-handed attempting to prize open crates which belonged to Marsh. Dig crews were dynamiting their own and each other's localities to prevent the other side from getting their hands on fossils. On top of this, the local Native American population, whose lands were being dug up and occasionally blown up, were particularly unimpressed. Apparently, Cope once diffused a very tense exchange with a group of Native American locals by taking his false teeth in and out for their amusement. (laughs) Their bickering soon spilled over from academic papers into newspapers, and Cope produced a journal which he'd kept in his desk drawer for years in which he'd written elaborate notes on every dishonest behaviour and every mistake that Marsh had ever made. This included accusations of plagiarism and mismanagement of public funds. He gave this journal to the press. Marsh was never investigated from these claims, but the affair was so ugly that Marsh was removed from his position and Cope's relationships with universities and museums turned sour. Both men's careers, finances and health dwindled after these events. They died within two years of each other. On his deathbed in 1897, Cope donated his body to science with two accompanying requests. The first was that he wished to become the homo sapien type specimen. (laughs) A request which was rejected when his skeleton showed evidence of syphilis. (laughs) The second desire was to have his brain measured in the hope that his brain would measure larger than Marsh's (laughs) and prove once and for all his superior intelligence. Although their contribution to science might best serve as an example that haste creates waste and that no one will want to work with you if you're a massive dickhead. (laughs) Cope and Marsh's legacy is still apparent today. Their personal collections became the backbone of the paleontology collections of the American Museum of Natural History, the Smithsonian, the Philadelphia Academy of Natural Sciences, and the Yale Yale Peabody Museum. Charles Darwin commented that Marsh's personal collection was the best support for the theory of evolution that he had seen. A few years after Marsh's death, the first articulated brontosaurus now known as a Patasaurus, or there may be Brontosaurus again. Um, you can thank Marsh for confusing classifications when it comes to dinosaurs. Um, was prepared at the American Museum of National History. It was partially cast from Marsh's specimens, and then the exhibit was open to the public. This provided people their first opportunity to stand beneath the towering form of a sauropod and feel the scale of it against their own bodies. One of the joys of working in a museum is catching people, especially kids, in this very moment, staring up at the dinosaurs with their mouths hanging open. From first sight, dinosaurs have a way of getting their claws into you and not letting you go. Which brings me back to the theme of science heroes. The dinosaurs discovered by Cope and Marsh have been amazing ambassadors for science for the last 150 years. Although we know, what we know about dinosaurs is changing, they're quicker and smarter, more feathery than Cope and Marsh could have ever imagined, Cope and Marsh did give us the iconic dinosaurs of our childhoods, the ones of the land before time and of Jurassic Park. And there is no doubt that they did inspire generations of scientists with their discoveries. Thank you so much to everyone for listening to me, especially my always inspiring Museum Victoria colleagues. You guys are the real science heroes. (laughs) Um, Oh, sorry to interrupt my applause. But um, (laughs) if I can make a quick quick plug for the 2016 Dinosaur Dreaming Dig season... Um, If you become a friend of the Dinosaur Dreaming Dig Project, you'll be supporting real and very well-behaved paleontologists um, and volunteers uncover Victorian dinosaurs and mammals and learn learn more about what our state was like in the Cretaceous period. 
Also, as friends of the dig, you could get to come along to the real-life paleo dig in Cape Otway National Park for a day. So sign up at dinosaurdreaming.monash.edu slash friends. Anyway, thank you. Australia on the Community Radio Network, you're listening to Lost in Science. All right, yes, we are speaking to Mars One candidate, physicist, comedian, future astronaut, Josh Richards. Josh, how's it going? It's good. It's great to be here. Um, I'm enjoying the blueness of the studio at the moment. Yeah, and well, it's different to the redness that you will you will encounter in your own life in the future. So look, we're speaking to you because you are a, a possible Mars explorer, Mars astronaut, and we're looking at the idea of whether you know going to going to Mars would give someone powers akin to a superhero. Can I just ask you, when you were a kid, did you want to be a superhero or was it always astronaut that you had in mind? I wanted to be an astronaut. I didn't sort of grow up with a lot of science fiction or things like that when I was when I was a kid. Um, I was definitely the, the weird, terrifying kid that was reading university physics books at, you know, primary school level and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, not a lot of fiction in my life, terrifyingly. Okay, right. Yeah. So, so um, you consider this um, trip to Mars and clearly non-fiction because you actually are sign up for a uh, a real life Mars um, exploration project. Yeah, so I'm I'm currently one of 100 people shortlisted to the Mars One project. Uh, they had about 200,000 people initially sort of get in touch with them about it. They had about four and a half thousand people sort of complete the full astronaut application, and they've been whittling us down ever since. So there's a hundred of us left. And uh, we'll see what happens in September when they put, pick the last 24. And do the last 24 all get to go to Mars? Mm, hopefully. They're doing about 10 years of training. So they'll send four on the first crew. Uh, but they're, yeah, they're essentially selecting 24 for training. And then they'll whittle down from there who's going to go on the first crew. And then hopefully people from that group will be in the second, third, fourth, all that sort of thing. Okay, well, it is obviously a very big thing. So why do you want to do it? Why, should, why, why do you want to go to Mars? Or why should anyone go to Mars? My, on, on a personal level for me, uh, it was always very much a case that I wanted to be an astronaut when I was a kid. Uh, and I vividly remember seeing Andy Thomas being selected in 1992 as mm-hmm. part of the astronaut corps then. I Adelaide's was, own Andy Thomas. Indeed, was, yeah. 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 Uh, lovely guy. Got, him, got to meet him a couple of years ago in Adelaide. Um, but I remember seeing him being selected when I was seven and turning to my folks and sort of saying, that's what I, want, what I want to do when I grow up. And my dad quite rightly turned around and saying, unless you become an American, you can't. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so the big push for Mars One with me is that it's international. Uh, yep. Anyone from any country can apply. They don't care what your background is, provided you're over 18, fit, healthy, and can learn what you need to learn. Uh, they want you to be part of the program. So... So are those the only criteria or do they, presumably when you're sending people on a very, very expensive, very, very long mission, you're going to have some tight requirements in the end. They're getting tighter and tighter. So it started very sort of loose, over 18, be able to read English to a certain level, uh, all those sort of things. It's becoming more and more strict. They didn't want to exclude people based on academic requirements. uh, So it's very much about personality. They're actually trying to find four people who work together like housemates 
rather than your traditional image of an astronaut. Good housemates. Good housemates because they're going to be there for the rest of their lives. Okay, so the young ones in space, I think, is what we're looking at here. <laughs> Sounds fantastic. Which actually doesn't sound like it's very beneficial for humanity, actually, when I put it that way. It's, what is the benefit for well, humanity? It's, it's going to make good TV. Yeah, uh, that's true, true. <laughs> and I joke about that, but the, the reality is you're going to have a generation of kids growing up watching astronauts on another planet. Uh, you know, right. tuning in. People joke about Big Brother in space. This is not Big Brother on Mars, but there's certainly an element there where people can tune in. They can watch yeah. what what's going on on Mars, and sort of kids growing up with the knowledge that if they want to do that, they could do that as well. Right. Well, in that case, maybe we should be like rocketing the Kardashians doing the planet. <laughs> that would make the show slightly more interesting. It would. Or we might just not air them. Um, <laughs> Even better. I guess my question was, though, is it benefit to humanity for us to go to Mars? Like, what is there, the potential benefit? There's, there's some real practical benefits uh, in terms of uh, becoming a dual planet species. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, what, what do you mean by that? All of a sudden, we're colonising two we're two two planets. So humanity sort of started on Earth, and then we'll have humans living on the surface of mars so if some sort of massive tragic event happened uh here on earth which you know you look through the geological record like it yeah. happens fairly regularly uh and a large portion of humanity was wiped out um there would be some sort of record that we existed on another planet at least now this is actually relevant to our purposes here because as we all know the planet krypton was threatened <laughs> with destruction and they responded by um sending a single baby uh, and then maybe his cousin to right. to the planet Earth. Um, should we perhaps, um, as a cheaper sort of better option, be just putting babies in rockets I'm and firing them at Mars? I, yeah? I'm I'm not a fan of babies, so like we should just be sending them to Mars. Maybe the opposite side of the planet to where we're going to be landing, but we should just be sending babies to Mars. Right. So or not for the, colonising purposes, just because you don't like re- the babies. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think that's probably what the Kryptonians were really doing in the end. Yeah, yeah. We don't want to tell you this, Clark, but you weren't wanted yeah. on. Just wouldn't stop screaming. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, look. Speaking of of um, Clark Kent or Kal El, I suppose to give him his, his birth name, I uh, obviously gained powers by coming to Earth. Um, we're trying to assess whether similar thing would happen if you go to Mars because Mars does have like weaker gravity than Earth. It's got a few other sort of things. So I just wanted to get your view on some of the possibilities here. So to assess it, I think we go through the, the the proper criteria for for what it takes to be a superhero. So. Let's go with the first one. Unfortunately, it's faster than a speeding bullet. Yeah. Do you think you can move faster on Mars? I think that's going to be a challenge for us. I think bullets are going to go faster because the atmosphere is thinner. Oh, so, really? Yeah, that's that's not helpful. Then yeah. again, at the same time, gunpowder needs oxygen to burn. So I don't well, know. So the bullet might just fall off the gun and just, yeah. just walking is faster than that. I have seen some people claiming that um, gunpowder has, or modern bullets have their own kind of oxidizing. Yeah, for sure, absolutely. So. But um, they still need... There still needs to be a little bit. Okay. Like it's it's not a perfect balance. Right. So it's oxygen balanced for Earth's atmosphere. Yeah. Whereas uh yeah, there's not very much on Mars. Okay, so it's possible that you wouldn't have to worry about speeding bullets on Mars. Yeah, well, I hope so. Yeah. I don't know. What what about I was also curious though on the way there, because um in terms of speed, getting to Mars, I imagine you have to go fairly fast. We're going pretty quick, yeah. Uh there's a variety of different sort of calculations that go into it depending on how you actually get there. Uh we're talking about travelling th- you know, anywhere between 56 million and 300 million kilometres uh, in seven to nine months. So you're going pretty quick. Wow. Um, mm. it, there's, a rough, there's no single speed for getting to Mars. Uh, yep. It all depends on how the planets align, when you launch, all those sort of things. So they have to calculate it out each time. So how do you get that fast? 
big rockets. Yeah. Really big, ro- really big rockets. Uh, we saw the Falcon 9 uh, land very recently uh, with a um, SpaceX returned mm-hmm. a, a booster from orbit. Uh, yeah, it was going pretty quick. Um, right. And we need to go considerably quicker to get there again. So lots of rockets and really big ones. Which is, um, I guess, you know, pretty obvious it's faster than the speeding bullet because bullets don't leave the Earth's um, no. gravity. So even the International Space Station travels faster than, uh, you know, a speeding bullet. Yeah. Um, International Space Station is doing about 27,000 kilometres an hour, um, orbits the Earth in 90 minutes, and uh, a bullet is, you know, a lot less than that. Yeah. Um, okay, so you will be going fast with spinning bullet, at least on the way there, and possibly yep. when you get there, there may not be any bullets to worry about. Okay, <laughs> next one is more powerful than a locomotive, because the gravity is weaker on Mars. Yep. Can you lift more than you would be able to on Earth? So you can definitely lift more. The concern is that on the way there, in your you know seven to nine month trip on the way there, your bones right. are breaking down because they're mm-hmm. not in a gravity environment. They're not going to drop all the way. So from what we've seen from folks living on the International Space Station for six, nearly 12 months uh, with the current crew that's up there now, uh, their bones break down, their muscles break down, they sort of, there is some loss. You can mitigate that with exercise. Okay. Uh, So I suppose, you know, if you manage to mitigate the the damage done from being in zero G on the way there, when you get to Mars, uh, you'll be three times stronger because you can lift things because they're... But will that also happen, you know, once you're living on Mars... Um, the gravity is lower there. Will your body start to just, you know, start to reabsorb the calcium? There's definitely, a, there's definitely a bone density loss over mm-hmm. time, uh, and that's that's a concern um, for us, but we're adjusting to the environment. So part mm-hmm. of the reason why we're talking about a one-way trip to Mars is you're adjusting to the Martian environment and coming back to an increased gravity environment is actually one of the biggest... So you would of, suffer? You would turn to a puddle of goo. Right, mm. wow. <laughs> so my concern is if you're adapting to the Mars, Mars you know, Environment, then any superness advantage you might have had when you first got there, you lo- might lose over time, and yeah. it'll all balance out, and you'll be equally as strong as the local back, Martians. Going back to Krypton, or you know, le- less so, just turning into a puddle, right. really ugly little. So puddle. Superman shouldn't go back to Krypton. No, that could no. actually be very, very bad for him. <laughs> we should okay. tell him this because I think he wants to go back, doesn't he? he, well, he yeah, I, I'm sure he's he's been back in various other sort of forms, but um, yeah. On a similar vein, um, leaping tall buildings in a single bound, assuming that you don't lose all your muscle and bone strength, <laughs> would you be able to leap higher on Mars? Definitely. Definitely be able to leap higher. Uh, whether or not you'd be able to leap over a building, that's questionable. Well, we're going to be how underground. The, how, oh, I was going to ask how big <laughs> the buildings are on Mars, but yeah, if you're going to be underground. We're going to be burying everything sort of under about five metres of soil. So the, uh, the tallest thing will be a doorway. Well, it's still going to be placed on the surface and then covered in dirt. So I suppose it'll be like jumping over a big hill. Okay. okay. Yeah. So still pretty high. It, is it? So it would be about three times as high as you can on Earth, you know, going by the same kind of Roughly, yeah. yeah. So it's th- it's 38% of Earth's gravity. So like you sort of round it to, you know, one third or whatever. That's okay. why I say three times as a general rule. But yeah, it's, it's certainly going to be a lot more. Um, and yeah, you jump higher, but probably not over a building. So, so how high can you jump here on Earth, I guess is the question. Straight, not much, because <laughs> I'm a tiny <laughs> pygmy of a man. And we're, we're inside, so I don't think we should, we should ask you to do it. But would you ask, I mean, would you be about, you know, a foot? Or like, a... Yeah, I was about to say, if it's like, say, jumping straight up, I don't know, maybe like, uh, 
between a foot and half a metre. So like, you know, 30 to 50 centimetres. Let's say 50 centimetres. Yeah. Let's multiply that by three. So that is 1.5 metres. So you, could, you could jump over um, a few people. You could, you could leapfrog very yeah. short people. Yeah, yeah, you, you could. could. Yeah, yeah, you could. Uh, right. Or kick them in the head. Um, <laughs> jump up and don't That's do that. That's a very simple no. thing to do as well. No. What, <laughs> kick people in the head? Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> I don't know who that is. I think I think we'll get to the morality side of it. <laughs> so you would be able to jump. We're not talking kind of flying. That's I suppose going to be out of the question. Well, interestingly enough, uh, one of the things has been kicked around by um, Robert Zubrin, who's the the founder of the Mars Society. Um, he's come up with all these fantastic ideas of living on Mars. He's been a big proponent for living on Mars for thirty years. Yeah. And one of the interesting ideas he has suggested is getting a like a dome habitat um, and pressurising it up to, you know, increased atmospheric pressure. Yeah, like uh, Earth-style Earth pressure. And you basically, like, have a person um, have plastic artificial butterfly wings and you'd be able to fly around because of the reduced gravity. Your arm muscles would be strong enough that you'd actually be able to fly yourself around. So it's one of his ideas that he's thrown, him, thrown around. That is awesome. Yeah. I've got to say, that's, <laughs> that sounds fantastic. Cool. Sign me up for Mars. I mean, if you're, yeah, like, obviously... You know, big wings, you wouldn't be able to flap yeah. it quickly enough here on Earth. But if you weighed one third of what you do, um, yeah. then you might be able to. So you would be able to fly in a very localized yeah, yeah. environment. <laughs> but still, that's something. That's Pre- more than we pressurized can do and under reduced gravity. Yeah, hopefully. Yeah, yeah. So, well, thanks again, Josh Richards, and good luck with um, September's Martian decision. Thank you so much for having me, guys. Cheers. That's it for this summer edition of Lost in Science, and of course, our entire summer series. If you want to hear more Tales from the Laboratory, well, you can get along to their live events every month at the Spotted Mallard in Brunswick. Details and tickets can be found at thelaboratory.com, as can recordings of their other events and other speakers. And also look out in the coming weeks for the launch of my new Science of Superheroes podcast with Michael Patterson, including the full interview with Josh Richards. I'll keep you posted on when it's available. In the meantime, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne. It airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email us at lostinsci at gmail.com or you can find us on Facebook or you can find us on Twitter or you can listen to us next week on the radio when, as always, Claire, Stu, Manisha and Chris will get Lost in Science! Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.